0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiot's Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the ID team come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. son. One day when the syrup is done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum,
1: how are you doing? I'm good. I think our loyal listeners will be glad to hear that we're going to have a gander through this episode. You could say we're going to have a glander. I see.
0: Oh, is that the pun? A glander? Yeah, a glander. Yeah, oh, okay. because we're glad to gander. Oh, dear. Hang glander. on. Hang on, Callum. just let me take this chloramphenicol eye drop. I've got a bad case of conjunctivitis. I've got a real smelly eye. And that reminds me, Callum. Uh, what are we talking about today?
1: Is that because you've been to Mali? So you've I... got a Mali
0: eye. No no, 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 That does not make more sense than your one. No, no, my one <laughs> yes, was fine.
1: No, it was not fine. None no. of them are fine. fine. They're all bad.
0: Okay, that's fair enough. Go ahead, Cal. What are we talking about today?
1: We're talking about Burkholderi mali.
0: Indeed, the last. Of our nobbling the non-fermenter series, Berkeldiria mallei, cousin um. to Berkeldiria pseudomallei, which we've just discussed.
1: It's sad, you know, when you when you're reading a good book and you get to the last couple of pages and you realise the book's going to end.
0: That's how I feel about nobbling the non-fermenters. Yeah, I, I feel slightly differently. I, I'm sort of sick of that book, and I wish that book would die. <sighs> but you have to finish it, even though yeah, you're not well, enjoying I- it. I have to finish it, but I don't like finishing it. It was like that time that I read Lord of the Rings. That's right, Callum, I said it. I'm just glad you read it, man. That's (laughs) Uh, too much poetry, and I didn't like Tom Bombadil. Okay, yes. So Glanders, uh, who's uh, the (laughs) thankfully mostly historical. Infectious disease is caused by Burkholderia mallei. This is the last Burkholderia, and indeed the last known fermenter that we're going to talk about. in a mini mini C, Callum, do you know anything about this? You, I take it you've never treated a case. Neither have I. Do you know anything about this?
1: Not until I read a little bit in preparation for this. I, I think I'd heard of it as a historic. I'm quite into history, and I think I'd read about it in and like it comes up in certain old novels and stuff. But I. Oh, does it? Really? I, I didn't. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Is it mentioned in Tolstoy or something? I can't remember. I, I feel like it, it's like a passing familiar in the sense
0: of, oh yes, that is old-timey disease. Yeah, yeah, a bit like consumption, uh, with TB's old name. Uh, yeah, that that's interesting because up until the 20th century, this was an incredibly important disease to control because it is a disease primarily of horses and other sort of beasts of burden. And up until the invention of the telegraph and I, I suppose semaphore, if you wanted to communicate something or transport something, a guy on a horse was by far and away the fastest way to do it. And it's dominated transport up until the invention of kind of motor vehicles. And so mm. having a disease that affected horses, if you had an outbreak, that was, it was vitally important to control it, particularly in sort of military settings. So I, th- I think, Callum, we're going to switch out the order here, but le- let's just start with the taxonomy and then we'll go and talk about the history. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, you're the
1: the assistant deputy
0: sub-co-host. Yes, so that, indeed. That was- is my official title. Thank you very much for letting me take part in this project of yours, Callum. <laughs> so uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, when we recorded last episode, uh, Maliai is part of the pseudo mm-hmm. complex. And I didn't know this. And so that is composed of... Uh, well, Callum, it wouldn't be a the non mini miniseries if we didn't do a classic, we list all the members uh, of a complex one after the other. Are you up for this? It's the last yeah. time we'll ever do it, Callum. Oh, no. Well, okay. we can do it for other groups, I guess, but... Well, I suppose we could, but not for non we want. It won't be the same. Won't. It won't be the same. It will not I'll start. Thailandensis. Maliai. Pseudomaliai. And that's the complex. That's, that's a simple, it's not a complex. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's a simplex, really. But these <laughs> organisms are all, are all very closely related to each other. And in fact, um, phylogenetic analysis would suggest very strongly that malii, which was identified by humans first, is an offshoot, a mutation of pseudomallei, which is the parent species. Hmm. Uh, just to make things a bit more confusing, I don't know what Thailandensis is, is to these two. It's not a significant pathogen in humans, and in, in the but last be found on
1: Maldi, And when you see an ID of Burkholderia Thailandensis on Maldi, you should think is this pseudomallei. Oh well, look
0: who was listening last week. Oh, fantastic stuff, Cam. I'm a loyal listener. Um, yeah, and and the main difference in the the very quick. Uh, identification difference between them would be pseudomallei is oxidase positive, uh, mallei is oxidase negative, and I don't know what Thailand answer says. Sorry, I didn't bother looking it up. Next, Calum, do you want to take us through the history of pseudomallei? So, four
1: two five BC, glanders was described by Hippocrates, and as James said already, this was significant throughout history because of the importance of horses in. Military action as cavalry, and the name glanders comes from the old French glandres or glanders, which is that means glands, which mm. is not surprising. It's the same root. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't know what glands are, it's a kind of colloquial term for lymph node. okay So Burkholderia malii is listed by the CDC as a Category B ter- bioterrorism agent. And it's not been a human pathogen in the UK. The last diagnosis here was 1928. Mm. And the last, so historically was around. And it was, but it was last diagnosed in the US much more recently in 2000, but that was a lab exposure event, tying back to it being a sort of lab hazards like pseudomalii. And prior to that, there had been cases in 1945, which was again, a lab exposure and 1934, which was the last natural infection. In the yeah. US yeah and I believe it's been applied in bio warfare
0: yeah so the so the 1945 exposure there were some but not all sources say that was part of bioweapons research on behalf of the US so this was you know it was happening in the middle of World War two other other articles didn't say that um, including the article that I've put in the prep notes but the history of this used as bio warfare it is really interesting, and there are suggestions that it had been used back in ancient history as a bio warfare agent hundreds or even thousands of years ago, but more recently there were in World War one the Germans were deliberately infecting uh, Russian horses on the eastern front, and there was a suggestion that they'd also done it to French cavalry because if you're wondering what horses were doing in World War one. At the beginning of the war, and even in the middle of the end of the war, there were still loads of horses being used, maybe not in cavalry as such, because very quickly it was determined that horses and machine guns don't mix very well. But in terms of transport, they were really, really important right up until the end. And so they, they then became a weak point that could be exploited. And there's a quote about a German suggested spy called Anton Dilger, and I've included a quote from the Wikipedia article about Malaya being used as bioterrorism. He was a German agent who was sent to the US in 1915 carrying cultures of B. Maliai and set up a lab at his home and then used Baltimore dock dog workers to infect horses with glanders because they were being shipped to the UK to then be used as part of the war effort. People suspected that he was a German agent, but he was never arrested. In fact, he, uh, in 1918, fled uh, the country to avoid arrest. Unfortunately, Callum, he fled to Spain, where he caught flu and promptly died. Oh. And then in the early 80s, the USSR was accused of using B. Maliai uh, against the Afghani uh, forces, the Mujahideen, because, again, horses were a significant part of how they got about and waged a guerrilla war against the <laughs> occupying forces. And Why don't you take us through the epidemiology? Where did we find? Yeah, it used
1: to be worldwide, as we mentioned there. But as horses became less important, the disease was eradicated, but is still
0: present in Africa, Asia and the Middle East, and Central and South America. The tropics and places where horses might be still used for transport and where there are large populations of them, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting disease. Uh, coming on to where we find it uh, growing, so it's a disease predominantly of what's called solopeds, so those are the things that go on one toe, as opposed to cloven-hooved animals like deer and things like that so that would be horses donkeys and mules which are half horse half donkey Uh, and then camelids so anything that's a camel sorry any member of that family any member of the family camelids that would that's camels as you know them today and llamas and alpaca too you can also find them in contaminated feed and water sorry Callum, have i just blown your mind about the fact llamas and alpacas are camelids Premier animal podcast Camels actually evolved in North America, migrated across the Bering Strait, then became extinct in in the plains as the environment became more unfavourable to their lifestyle. Uh, but then they moved south into South America and evolved into llamas and alpacas. And camels thrived in uh, the plains of, kind of East Asia and Africa. So this are... is the sort of stuff that we mentioned when we take a history from a patient and infectious disease. <laughs> <laughs> this is how detailed we go. All right, fair enough. Callum, what are the risk groups for acquiring glanders or bee mallei? Yeah, as you'd expect, I bring this back to a human infectious disease
1: episode. So the people that are uh, in close contact with horses and solopeds and camelids. So that's the vets, horse caretakers, so far- farriers and stable hands, laboratorians, equine butchers, abattoir workers, and really... The exposure, is the most significant exposure animal is horses. And that's because the horses are more prone to chronic or latent infection and donkeys have more acute infection.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting fact, actually, about the how it hits the animals differently. Yeah, you always need um, to ask if it was a donkey or a horse they had contact with. And what about transmission, Cal? How do you get um, well, how does it's it transmit basic, to humans, yeah.
1: Yeah, the, so the infected animals
0: have fluid. I presume, is that from lesions? It, it's from the respiratory tract, yeah. So they've got oh. how... I'll talk about how it affects animals in the clinical syndrome a bit.
1: Yeah, so infected respiratory fluid. Sometimes dust from infected bedding would be another route. So I guess globally, farmers are at risk of a lot of zoonoses, so infections mm-hmm. associated with animals. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as we said, horses, but other solipeds, camels and goats. Uh, you can also get inoculation through skin cuts abrasions or through the mucosa and human to human transmission is rare but apparently possible.
0: Yeah, very, very rare. Yeah, very And the, rare. how it affects horses say it's quite nasty. So it's a disease of the respiratory tract really and it can lead to ulceration of the respiratory tract. The glands go up big on the horse, uh, on the neck of the horse which gives it its name. That's, that's mostly how you identify it. But you can get these horrible pustules. And because horses can't breathe through their mouths, they only breathe through their nose, they don't have the kind of joined-up GI and respiratory tract that we have, Cal. The, yeah. If the glandular becomes bad enough, the horse can start to suffocate Um, really, really nasty, or it can be really nasty. So, yeah. So what about the clinical syndromes in humans? So... We're going it's quite to quite similar them. to pseudomallei. Like it's those. really similar, yeah, and them being they're very closely related allogenetically, so that that would make sense. But there, there are some differences, really. The localized infection usually after inoculation will result in ulceration from the skin and localized lymph nodes. So it does affect the lymph nodes more than it does. And if that is left unkept, then it can ulcerate and turn into an abscess that, that separates. If the mucous membrane is affected, so if it gets into your eye, you just get mucoid hyperproduction from from the site. So if that's the eye, you'll get lacrimation and light sensitivity. And if if left untreated, then one to four weeks afterwards, you can get disseminated disease that we'll talk about Mm -hmm. shortly. The most common presentation is acute glanders. And that has a one to 14 day incubation period on average. And it will start with an ulceration of the upper respiratory tract, and then nodules will develop in the lung. And if left untreated, that will lead to pneumonia, abscesses, and local empyema. And the symptoms are, as you would expect, cough, fever, muscle aches are a prominent feature, chest pain, headache, light sensitivity, upper respiratory tract discharge. And then it's, it's really interesting because that 1945 outbreak with the lab workers, the inoculation events were all inhalation uh, because of substandard lab practices that you wouldn't get away with these days. And because of that, they were really tightly monitored. And when the symptoms came on, they were documented extensively. And so we've got really good timelines for this. And the reason I mentioned this is that in acute glanders, the patients can then transiently feel better at about the 7 to 10 day work. And then they'll get a second wave of symptoms where they'll feel worse. And Mm -hmm. if they aren't treated at that point, it will lead to dot, 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 disseminated infection or septicemic glanders. And that's when it spreads to the blood. That can happen at the time of acute glanders. So you can get pneumonia with bloodstream infection or it can happen anything up to two weeks afterwards. And it can also be secondary to skin disease. That's got a longer sort of timeline of one to four weeks. And if left untreated, they'll die within seven to ten days. And then lastly to say is that there are some people that have chronic glanders and that's been described. The incubation period is on average about 12 weeks and that is usually skin and soft tissue. So they'll get abscesses in the skin of the arms and legs, but also in the musculature. So it descends and it can disseminate to lung, spleen and liver. So similar to helioid. And also similar to melioid, it can be very chronic. So there have been cases that have been lasted sort of 25 years. So the patient is not dead, but they still have this chronic disease. And after chronic infection, some people will end up being carriers of B. malii. I don't know exactly where they will be carrying it, but yeah. So if you've got these conditions, what are your chance of, of dying of it? So this is a bit difficult. The information is a little bit difficult to Pars out Cal because the disease is not as well described as melioid. Frankly, but based on current and historical data, the overall case fatality rate is about forty percent. For localized disease, it's twenty. If you've got pneumonia and you don't treat it, it's about ninety percent, and usually within ten to thirty days of onset of symptoms. And with treatment, it's forty. And for disseminated disease, untreated, it's more than ninety-five percent, and with treatment, it's about fifty as well. And all that averages out to a CFR of about forty percent. So, Calum, take us through the microbiology of this. How do you diagnose it usually? So,
1: starting the basics, as with all the non-fermenters, it's a Gram-negative bacillus, and usually on the Gram, it's straight, or it's got a slight curve. It's non-motile. And that's in opposition to pseudomali, which is Motel. so that's a mm. good differentiator. And as Jane mentioned earlier on, it's oxidase negative. You usually culture it from blood sample, sputum, urine, or skin samples, like skin biopsies, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. 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 And then the agar, so there's no commercially available agar as we talked about pseudomaliae was similar but it should grow on your standard Columbia blood or blood agar or your chocolate agar at 35 to 37 degrees, as with most things. And uh, it may or may not grow on something like McConkie agar, so a selective agar. And then when you do grow it, the colonies look smooth, grey, translucent. And then microscopy, so usually they're in, uh, single organisms or they can be end-to-end pair or it can be palisading bundles a palisade wall and they can exhibit bipolar staining
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then to id so usually that's on a moldy toff. and other methods that you could use would be pcr which is probably a reference lab and multi-locus sequence typing and when they didn't, that's what Jane was referencing earlier on, so that the Burkholderia mallei sequence type was grouped within the Burkholderia pseudomallei sequence types, and suggesting it's a clone that's diverged at some point in the past. Other things that could be used would be, as with everything, basically, 16S, RNA, or whole
0: genome sequencing. Yeah, and all the SMI say that about just about everything, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. for standard labs... It's, it's Malditoff, and it's Malditoff seems to be fine at identifying these organisms. They it's might get to mix them up with each other, but that's about it. It's amazing.
1: I guess one thing is worth mentioning is, given it's a lab hazard, you probably don't have a Malditoff in your category-free lab or your high, your safety lab, so in which case you're probably going to be doing basic work in that area and then sending it off to a reference lab if you're suspecting it. So... Oh, yeah. um, let the lab team know if you're suspecting something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't be doing uh, unless you're lucky enough to have a moldy toff in your CL3 lab, which I don't think anybody would have really. That's the ref a lab will,
0: surely. Well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So in terms of treatment, that's interesting because the, I've included a review article that I've got. It's from 2013 or 2014, something like that. Glander's an overview of infection in humans. Uh, I I also use the CDC's webpage on Glander, which has an advice for health professional section. Really, the treatment of it is the same as for Brucellia Um and because that's the pathogen that's been re- researched a bit more, it's so it's now got UCast breakpoints. Not so for B. mallei; it's not important enough really to deserve them. But it is usually sensitive to the same agent. So that would be imipenem, ceftazidime. Tetracyclines, ciprofloxacin, sulfonafides, so your cotrimoxazole, and the but the important differences are that it's usually sensitive to aminoglycosides and macrolides, unlike pseudomallei, and so that's another way actually that in the field you can try and identify mallei is by documenting a sensitivity to these these two agents. And the recommended agents are the same as for Burkholderia pseudomalei because, again, resistance isn't really a significant issue. In fact, I couldn't find anything on resistance for these organisms, Cal. So you would do a two-week or maybe a bit longer, depending on how severe the infection is, induction phase with Keftasdeme or Meropenem. Again, the regimens as for pseudomallei. So see the prep notes on our previous episode for those details. And then an eradication phase with cotramoxazole, again, dosed in, in the previous episode show notes. The, there are a couple of other suggested regimens in that article. So you can use doxycycline 2.5 milligrams per kilogram for a maximum of 100 milligrams twice daily. So that would be a 2.5 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum dose of 100 milligrams twice daily. I've never seen weight based dosing for doxy. Me neither, but I just give a 100 hundred milligrams point. BD is the standard dosing thing. these days. Or you could also use coamoxiclav 625 milligrams three times a day or 875 milligrams twice daily, depending on what formulation you have available in your country. Hmm. And uh, the, none of that was suitable. You could also use macrolides, chloramphenicol, or quinolones, but no dosage was really recommended. I guess you would use the standard or the high dose of whatever those are. Yeah, and that, Callum, is the end of the nobbling the non fermenters mini series. Non fermenters nobbled. Yeah, except for the ones that we've not mentioned that we'll discuss in the future.
1: <laughs> yes. So we've talked through. We've had we've presented episodes on Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Theria capacia complex, Burkholderia pseudomallei, Burkholderia mallei, Stenotrophomonas multifilia, Acinetobacter baumannii. Uh calso calco
0: <laughs> Not even close. Acinitabater As- <laughs> As- Baumanii Calcoaceticus complex.
1: Acinto baumanii calsoaceticus complex. Jesus Christ. How Is did you calso- pass the part two? Calso what?
0: I suppose it was written down.
1: Calsoi. Say it again. Calco.
0: So okay. we've presented on all of those pathogens. <laughs> I didn't say on them and that loyal listener and crab yes and crab so we've presented on all those pathogens and we hope that you found it useful and we hope that it will be good for your revision in the future next week something completely different I'm so tired of these bugs it's time to do something
1: funny we nobbled the non-plementers or they nobbled you
0: Jim? Well that's the question next week to find out the answer (laughs) Thank you for listening to the
1: Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content, so please don't blame them if we get something wrong.
0: Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket? Calman, I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to donate to support the show, there's a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learned and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.